Today's reading is from 2 Chronicles, chapter 33, verse 21, through chapter 34, verse 3. Amon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his father Manasseh had done. Amon worshipped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. But unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Amon increased his guilt. Amon's officials conspired against him and assassinated him in his palace. Then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Amon, and they made Josiah his son king in his place. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. Well, good morning. It's very nice to see you. I've never thought of myself as very tall, as Joe said, but this is a good height for the lectern. Let's pray that God would speak to each of us through his word today. Would you like to join me in prayer? Father God, thank you for your presence with us. And we look to you, Lord, for hope this morning. We look to you for instruction. We ask you, Lord, to open our ears and our hearts to you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, I'm going to talk about Josiah, King Josiah, the king who led God's people out of darkness. As I was uh, thinking what to preach about today, I thought what we really need is a message of hope. And you might say to me, well, Rupert, how can it be that you talking about a king some 2,500 years ago is meant to minister hope to us today? It's a good question. And I would say this, because the same king who ruled over that king, God, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, is still reigning today. And unlike you and me, he does not change over time. Over time, uh, you don't need me to break it to you, but we do change in all sorts of ways. We change our minds, uh, we change our moods, and with age, we change not just our understanding, but we change what we're capable of as we get older. But God doesn't change. And so he doesn't say to me this morning, oh, my dear Rupert, uh, I haven't got the strength I used to have. Or you know what, I've, I've changed my mind. Or I can't even remember what I did promise, remind me. He, he is the same God. So. As we look together at the life of Josiah, I invite you to have at the back of your mind the God who is at work in his life can be at work in my life. The God who was at work in his country can be at work in my country. So who is this chap, Josiah? Well, he reigned for 31 years, beginning about 639 BC. 
and he stands out from all the kings. And it's written of him in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Now you can find out all about Josiah by reading in two chronicles and it's in two very long chapters which is why we didn't have them read to you and you can't uh, really read them while I'm talking but when you get home I suggest you might look at two chronicles chapter 34 and 35 and if you're watching online at home you might press pause and you might want to just skim read it through. His story, this story is a story of personal spiritual renewal and it's a journey from the pits of darkness out into the light. He never really gets to what you might call a sunlit uplands but he does at least personally and with his whole country, his whole nation come out into the light and there are a number of crucial steps that one has to take if one's going to make that journey. But I want to start with a general point, and this is it. It's never so dark that the light can't get through. It's never so dark that the light can't get through. Now, a pessimist would say something else. I think a pessimist might say, it's never so dark that it can't get darker. But that, that isn't what we say. Or they would say, you know, always be careful because the light at the end of a tunnel might be a train. You know, that, 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 that isn't what the scripture teaches us. And when I say that things were dark when Josiah became king, let, let me just uh, back that up for a moment. Because we're told that his grandfather, a fellow called Manasseh, reigned for 55 years and he followed detestable practices. So, of course, if you've got a mind like mine, you're thinking, well, how was he detestable? In what way exactly? Well, to give you an idea, he sacrificed his children. That's pretty detestable. He practiced witchcraft. And a summary statement, Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. And... Um, I'm not preaching on Manasseh, so I won't go into him in detail, but basically he gets deported from his home country, his home city in Jerusalem. He gets led off by the king of Assyria to Babylon, where remarkably he comes to his senses. And he returns back in his uh, kind of middle age, back to his home of Jerusalem, but he can never quite bring himself to tackle the big issues back in his home city, uh, issues of idolatry and things like that. So he, he, when he dies, the kingship gets handed over to Josiah's father, a fellow called Amon. Now his reign starts badly and ends worse, and he is assassinated. Which brings us to Josiah. And we read about him in uh, chapter 34, verse 1, that he's aged eight when he takes to the throne. Now, you have to use your imagination, you know, imagine instead of sending the children off, you know, Joe does it every week, you know, fresh go in that direction, 16-year-olds go in that direction, eight-year-old, you take the, take the crown, why don't you? Well, you might have seen pictures of Queen Victoria when she ascended to the throne, and you just see the frailty and fragility of that young person. Well, imagine an eight-year-old 
told in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 3. Then Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. Now, right here, in this very first verse about him, is the very first step from darkness to light. He began to seek the God of his father, David. If you, if I, if we are going to journey from darkness to light, this step is a first step. You don't have to be king to do this, to seek God. You don't have to be the religious sort to do this, whatever the religious sort is. You don't have to be a clergy person to do this, but if you are a clergy person, it would be a jolly good thing if you did. You don't have to be in trouble to do this, but if you are in trouble, either of your own making or someone else's making, it would be a very good thing to do this. Have you thought of seeking the Lord today? God has come to help his people. That's what they said about Jesus. People turn to all sorts of places for help, for guidance, for a way through life. You know, they have fitness trainers. Uh, we turn to our friends over coffee. You turn to advisors, to therapists, to this, that, and the other consultant. What about turning to God? What about seeking him? And sometimes it's not because life is going badly at all. Sometimes life is just going absolutely swimmingly, but you know that it's not fulfilling and there's something missing. And I've known people seek God at that point too. There's never a bad time to seek God. And you've got to start from somewhere. So it's an obvious question. Where, where on earth would you look? I mean, you might say to me, Rupert, that's fine as a piece of advice, but you're making it sound like he could pop up and make himself known. Is that what you expect to happen? Well, in a manner of speaking, yes. If you seek him with all your heart, God says in the scriptures more than once, you will surely find him. And there are so many ways of discovering the Lord Jesus Christ that I wouldn't want to limit him. Most people meet him through the scriptures. That's where he reveals himself, and we'll come back to that. But what I'm talking about right now is your hunger of heart and my hunger of heart. Would you be prepared to seek the Lord? I was 20 years old when I started to seek God, really through seeing the lifestyle and character and witness of a friend and what she had to say that led me to the scriptures. But all the simple point I'm making is Josiah starts on the right track, the journey out of darkness to light, when he seeks the Lord. That is the first step. But then we move to the second step and it's recorded something that happens four years later. So at the grand young age of 20, in chapter 34, verse 3, God begins to put on Josiah's heart a desire that will turn out to shape the whole of his life. And it's rather curious because it, it's something that happens to him as he seeks the Lord over time. He begins to see his world differently. And the the curious thing is that what was going on all around him in Jerusalem, I'm absolutely certain that hadn't changed from the day he was born. And what was going on made him more and more and more ill at ease. 
And what was going on was that there were shrines on the top of the mountains where pagan priests set up their own kind of worship centers. And they built Asherah poles and they built temples of Baal. And more and more, in his bones, in his spirit, this young Josiah gets vexed. Until one day, it seems like something in him snaps. Or it may have been quite different. It may have been that as he thought about it, he got more and more and more certain that what he was seeing round about him was not right. And this burden is put on his heart from God and it's a sense that he could already see in his mind's eye what God wanted to do to his country tomorrow. I think a good definition of vision is this, seeing today God's preferred future for tomorrow. And he gets captivated by this vision and it galvanizes him. A very good example of a similar thing happening comes from a book I read about a young lady called Jackie Pullinger. Well, she was young when this event happened. She's not so young now. And she describes what she saw when she first arrived in Hong Kong and started living in the squalor that was the walled city. Let me, let me read it to you. I loved this dark city. I loved wandering down the narrow lanes, which were like some exaggerated stage set. Now, it upset me to see 12 and 13-year-old prostitutes who'd been sold by their parents and boyfriends. I saw thousands of poor people living in one-room dwellings. Many were so crammed that they had to sleep in shifts because they couldn't all lie down at the same time. I saw some who still were living with pigs, neither able to see the light. I loved this dark place. I hated what was happening in it, but I wanted to be nowhere else. It was almost as if I could already see another city in its place. And that city was ablaze with light. It was my dream. There was no more crying, no more death and pain. The sick were healed and addicts were set free. The hungry filled. There were families for orphans, homes for the homeless, and a new dignity for those who had lived in shame. I had no idea how to bring this about. But with visionary zeal, I imagined introducing the walled city to the one who could change all of this. Jesus. And I think a similar thing happened to Josiah as he was walking through his city. It hit him forcibly. This land belongs to God and these people belong to God and these practices have no place here. And we would call this a passion for holiness. And sometimes you know what's wrong before you know what's right. What's going on here should not be. Get them out. It's the first stage of the vision that Josiah has. And incidentally, Josiah isn't the only person in scripture who uproots what's wrong before being able to replace it with what's right. You can think of it a bit like gardeners doing ground clearance, if you like. Didn't Gideon do exactly that? Isn't Jeremiah told that he must uproot first before he can plant and build? Didn't Jesus in the temple overturn the money changers' tables? And something happens 
in the heavenly realms when we clear away the rubble and restore honor to God's household. And what happens for Josiah is as he's obedient, so step by step, God increases his vision. And he was obedient. Let me read from verse 3. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles, carved idols and cast images. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down, and he cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them, and he smashed the Asherah poles, the idols, and the images. That's a wholesale cleansing, isn't there, of idolatry. And so six years later, in verse 8, now at the age of 18, or rather in the 18th year of his reign, he wants to do more, and he gets more ambitious. He's actually aged 26. And God puts on his heart not just purifying the land, but to repair the temple. And I'd like you to notice, uh, when you have time to read this chapter yourself, you will notice that it's a huge enterprise and it's striking that so many names are mentioned. It's the kind of Old Testament passage you would dread being given to read out because it's absolutely chock-a-block with unpronounceable names. But instead of worrying about the names, what I'd like you to see is so many people bought into what was God was doing. And they're not just bought into it with their time. They evidently gave their resources, their money. And they, they really were up for it. And you will find, and I will find, that when we anchor ourselves to God's vision, other people buy in too, because it's God at work. It's God at work. And not only will many people buy into it, but will be prepared to do very, very ordinary things for God, which you might have thought, humanly speaking, rather infradig. If we look at the list carefully of who did what, we, we just find it tucked away there I'll just read you a couple of verses. The men did the work faithfully. Over them to direct them were, and then there's a whole string of names, who were Levites. The Levites, who were all skilled in playing musical instruments, had charge of the laborers and supervised all the workers from job to job. So they put down their flutes and their mandolins and their cymbals and their drums, whatever else they played, and they got on with the hard labor. What's that saying to us? It, it means they were up for anything. Any way they could serve, they wanted to serve. They didn't stand on ceremony. They didn't stand on their positions. They just wanted to see God's house built. God raises up teamwork to build his kingdom. It's what he does. God releases resources through his followers. It's what he does. And God increases vision to his followers when we obey him step by step. I dare say that if Josiah had not stopped to clear the high places first, he would never have known of the plans that God had yet to reveal to him. And certainly if he hadn't set about trying to cleanse the temple and rebuild it, he would never have got to the next stage that we're just about to come to. Vision grows as we're obedient to it and God releases the next step. When we get to the next stage, I want to highlight that we cross a boundary. We can only get so far in our own strength. You could argue that everything that Josiah has done so far, anyone might have done. I'm not sure that's correct, but you could argue that. You could argue that you could cleanse the worship on the hilltops. 
You could argue that you could set about rebuilding a building. But there comes a time when you're working for God that you will be forced to acknowledge you need God's help or you're going to come to a grinding halt. There are some things only God can do. And the breakthrough in the whole story of Josiah and the transformation of the people is almost quite comic the way it's described. Because what's described is as they're clearing away rubble from the house in the hope of cleansing the temple and the hope of uh, getting out the clutter and the detritus that has built up, they discover a book. And it just looks like a book. And then if you read it from uh, verse 14 onwards, it's like they play pass the parcel with this book. Hilkiah the priest gave it to Shaphan the secretary. Shaphan took it to the king and told him, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And then Shaphan reads from the book. And when he does, he breaks the king's heart. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He's convicted by the power of God's word. Friends, this is happening all over the world today. This is what happens in history when people connect with God's word. When Thomas Wolsey was on his deathbed, somebody was bold enough to give him a copy of the New Testament. When he finished reading it, he turned to him and said, either these are not the Gospels or we are not Christians. God's word has power. A politician in Great Britain of years ago, Stanley Baldwin, said, the Bible is a high explosive, but it works in strange ways. And no living person can tell how this book, in its journey through the world, has startled the individual soul in 10,000 different places into a new life, a new belief, a new conception, a new faith. Why was Josiah so awestruck? Why does he rent his clothes? Because through reading God's word or having it read to him, he's suddenly convicted. He suddenly sees the great gap that there is between he himself and the way he's doing life and God himself and the life he should be living. I'm not sure these things exist anymore, but many, many years ago, I remember going through a hall of mirrors. And um, in its own rather dated way, it was quite fun. The first mirror you kind of looked at made you incredibly tall and very, very thin. And the next mirror made you predictably very squat and extraordinarily fat. And you went past any number of mirrors until after a while, you got so used to so many distortions of the real you, you, you almost had forgotten quite what the right proportions were. And in our journey through life, that is a bit like how you and I see each, each other. I, I think it's almost totally inevitable that we form some sort of comparison between ourselves and the other people that we know, and we decide we're really not so bad after all. But that isn't an accurate picture of ourselves, because what Scripture tells us, what the Word of God allows us to see is whoever we are, there's a massive gap between the way we're doing life and the way that God intends us to do life. And it breaks Josiah's heart. I think that's what God has the prerogative to do. In, in a way, the spiritual journey is a riches to rags story in that that has to happen 
and it happened to him. And we're told in 2 Chronicles 34, 27, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I've heard you, declares the Lord. And you know, that kind of realization is at the heart of spiritual renewal. It always is. There's an amazing work of God going on right now in a place called Asbury in the United States, and you might have read about it online. Some students met in their university campus, and it was just a perfectly ordinary meeting. And at the end of it, a few of them decided to stay behind and just pray a little bit longer. And that meeting's still going on, days and days and days later. Of course, being in the age that we live in, it's, it's all over social media and people started trucking into the town from all over all countries. And the people running the campus said, no, we're not having this. In a sense, we don't want this to be a kind of voyeur move of God. And so they've rearranged things, but it's still going on. It's spreading from campus to campus. It's much too early to know what the outcome will be. But I can tell you this. God won't shake the world through us until he's shaken us through. So it doesn't surprise me that this is happening there. But if we want to see the world shaken up for God, you've got to be prepared to be shaken by God first. And the scriptures have the power to do this. That's the point. That's the point. It was when the scriptures were read out that the revolution started in Josiah's day. And I'd just love to impress upon us, you know, I look out and I know that many, many that I'm talking to this morning, you're regulars here at St. Michael's. And I want to tell you the investment of your time in getting to know the scriptures is so worthwhile. Why? Because there's a such ignorance out there that when God does move, people are going to need direction. And who do they turn to? They'll turn to you. And secondly, you need to know the scriptures because if you don't know the scriptures, how will you know what truth is and what error is? You'll only know that, I will only know that through the scriptures. There's something very touching in the middle of this story about what happens to Josiah and the nation of Israel. And it's just one tiny little sentence. But basically what happens after they read the king, uh, Josiah, from the words of the law, and after he's rent his clothes, and, and when he's, he's really so open, so hungry, so desperate before God, and he turns to his advisors and says, well, where do we go from here? What happens next? What shall we do? And one of them remembers, and it's very touching, he remembers, do you know, I've just remembered there's that old lady, and she lives in the second district of Jerusalem. She's the keeper of the king's wardrobe, and she's a prophet. Why don't you go and ask her what to do next? That's in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 22. Hilkiah and those the king had sent with him went to speak to the prophetess Halva, who was the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokar the son of Hathra, keeper of a wardrobe, and she lived in Jerusalem in the second district. What a heroine. What a precious thing to be able to turn to someone who had steeped themselves in scripture, who was a reliable pointer to the ways of God. And suddenly an enormous amount happens in double quick time. 
an illustration uh, of a similar thing happening comes to my mind in England, in Cornwall, back in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. There was a clergyman called William Haslam, and you can read all about him in his own book, From Death to Life. And according to his own words, in the first few years that he was ordained, what absolutely preoccupied him was the love of the church building that he was in charge of. And the first book he ever wrote was all about church architecture and the significance of various stones in a church and how to keep them well. And that was the sum total of his devotion, really, to God. But his life suddenly got um, uncomfortable, first of all, when his fiancée died, and as the communications didn't work, the message towards him telling him that his wife was seriously ill gets mislaid, and by the time he arrives at his uh, wife's house, she's already dead. So he returns home, as you could imagine, absolutely disconsolate. It, it appears that his closest friend at that time was his gardener, and his gardener doesn't worship in the Anglican church because he is what's known as a dissenter. He, he, he worships in some Cornish tin tabernacle down the road. And the gardener is, is horribly ill and going to die very shortly. And William Haslam goes to visit his friend. And he says to his friend, as only a pompous Anglican clergyman could do, so what can I do for you? And uh, the friend says, well, get yourself converted which sends off Haslam back home, uh, not just with his tail between his legs, but really quite cross and quite angry and quite put out. But there's something in the truth of what he's heard that disturbs him. So he can't go and ask the gardener what to do next because that would be seriously out of order. So he turns to one of his friends, who's also a clergyman, called Robert Aitken. And he tells him the whole story with a sense of disgust. And Robert Aitken says to him, well, I agree with the gardener. You should shut your church until you get converted. Go out, shut the church and find out who God is. For goodness sake, seek God, William. And this only annoys him even more. But he does shut his church during the week at least. And he just continues to preach on Sunday, uh, reading other people's sermons, mostly. And then one day, as he is preaching, as he says it, the light of God fills him. The love of God fills him. And he doesn't know what's really changed in his countenance or his demeanor, but someone in the congregation stands up and says, the parson's converted. The parson's converted. And before he can do anything else about it, pandemonium breaks out in his own church, a great hullabaloo, which, of course, he doesn't like very much. And he, he writes in his um, book, when this subsided, I found at least 20 people crying for mercy whose voices hadn't been heard in the excitement and noise of thanksgiving. And they all professed to find peace and joy in believing. And amongst this number were three from my own household. And we all returned home praising God. And that's an illustration of what can happen, which only God can do. Only God can do it. And what happens to Josiah, because I need to speed to the end, what happens to Josiah is amazing revival breaks out. We're told that the king stood by the pillar of the now uh, remade temple and renewed the covenant 
in the presence of the Lord, to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations and decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. And then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledged themselves to it and the people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And they worshipped with the most extravagant, luxurious, over-the-top Passover there had ever been with the most incredible number of animals sacrificed. Now, before I close the sermon, I want to make one point. I don't think I'd have spotted this. Someone had to point it out to me. All the events that I've talked about, all the events were predicted, were prophesied 350 years before they took place. During a time of the kingship of King Jeroboam, which was pretty dark itself, in 1 Kings chapter 13, a prophet stands up and this is what he says. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. And then rather strangely, in the way that prophets can be strange, he prophesies to the altar on you, that is the altar, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burnt on you. Well, when King Jeroboam heard this, he got angry, and he cried out against the altar of Bethel, and King Jeroboam stretched out his hand towards the altar and commands those around to seize the prophet. But as he stretches out his hand it begins to shrivel up and he can't put it back. 350 years later, King Josiah, aged eight, took the throne and all these things were accomplished. Friends, God has not changed his mind. He will build his kingdom. He will lead us from darkness to light. If you seek him, you'll find him. Jesus has a vision and he won't let it go. The kingdom of God is his vision. As you walk around, as you think of the people in your street, as you think of the people you meet today, as you think of the people in your family, those who are far from him and those who are close to him and those who are following him, the kingdom can break out. There is nowhere that is so dark the light can't come. God has not changed his mind. God will not change his mind. God has not grown weak over the years. He hasn't suffered a memory lapse. He will build his kingdom. And we will be part of it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work amongst your people today all around the world. We thank you that you are faithful and those who seek you find you. We thank you that in a few moments we can come forward and share from the Lord's table and you offer forgiveness and a fresh start. We pray, Lord, that you would come and shake us by your Holy Spirit. If we need to be humbled, humble us. We certainly need to be equipped, so equip us. And if a light has grown dim in our lives, we pray that you come and rekindle it. 
We want to walk in your ways. We want to see what can happen when you are king. And we offer you ourselves for this. In Jesus' name, amen.